Hello, everyone. That Weems got here for another episode. Uh, as I told you last week, we have moved into the top 5% of all podcasts in podcast land. So that means that you people on the panel tonight and those of you listening, you are listening to one of the top 140,000 podcasts that are available. <laughs> it's a very exclusive company. Big <laughs> time. Yeah, I, I sit there looking at it and go, "Well, how many podcasts get no audience if we're if we're already at the top five percent?" And then I think about the demographic. Well, one hundred forty thousand. They're still that could be ahead. Uh, uh, we're going to do the round robin format again this week. The response that we got from last week's episode was extremely positive. Uh, it's a very easy show to produce, so I enjoyed it. Um, it's funny, last week I sent out 11 invitations and had three people that could respond and do it. This week I sent out nine and we have six that made it. So I'm not going to ask a question to start off with. We're going to go straight to our audience asking questions after they do their intros. First up to intro, Mr. Tim Reedy. Thank you, Lee. Uh, hi, folks. Tim Reedy, TDR Training, uh, based out of Bandera, Texas, a little bit northwest of San Antonio. And I teach a whole lot of intro to handgun, uh, intro to holster basics, and license to carry stuff with a little bit of intermediate uh, defensive handgun stuff. Jamie. Uh, Jamie Meyer here in Southern Oklahoma. I uh, have a company called Oklahoma Gun Training. And I too am like Tim and do a lot of basic training. And I really have an emphasis on women. And that's kind of my niche. All right, Mr. John Holson. Hey, folks. John Holson. I'm with West Coast Armory North in Everett, Washington. Uh, we also uh, responded to the demand for entry-level handgun training. Uh, we train about 2,000 to 2,500 folks a year over the last, each year, the last three years. Uh, try and get out and do some intermediate-level stuff now and then. But uh, there's just a lot of folks getting started on this path. Howard? Hey there, I'm Howard Marbury. I teach um, intro courses just like Tim and the rest in Ocala, Florida, uh, HWM training and R&D tactical range. And uh, I focus primarily on uh, Florida concealed weapons permits and introductory holster and marksmanship classes. Karen? Cool. Hey, um, I'm Karen Whitlock. I'm from Flowery Branch, Georgia. I own Trigger Time indoor gun range with my husband rick and we are actually celebrating our 10th year of ownership which is really cool like everybody else here so far i teach beginners too so people who've really never touched a gun before are nervous about it or uncomfortable with it that's mostly my specialty i do have do some intermediate stuff right now but primarily it's the beginners so y'all are not alone <laughs> Steve? Oh, I'm Steve Moses. I'm with Palisade Training Group. I live in Bluffdale, Texas, a little bit west of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, we primarily focus on church security, leader, and instructor development, and uh, managing potential threats in public areas. All righty. Mr. Reedy, fire away. Okay. Um, I think the topic I'd like to discuss is the mental aspect of shooting and how it affects your performance. I just got back from a two-day technical handgun tests and standards class in Utah, 
And this is the third time I've taken it. This is taught by the Citizens Defense Research folks, John Johnston, Melody Lauer, Chris Seifert. And uh, the first time I took this class, it was when I hosted John. And he told me the signature uh, test of the class, the test with no name. And he told me what the part-time was to get the advanced award. And I, he, you know, it's 12 shots from concealment, five on one B8, one on a one inch square, five on another B8, and one on another one inch square. And uh, he said the part-time was six seconds. And I looked at him and I said, that's impossible. And he said, is it? And that first class I did very poorly. Oh, well, not very poorly. Let me rephrase that. I, I could have done better. I think I passed it with about 11 seconds. Uh, the second class, I actually had a 5.88 run on one. And then I had a DQ on the other one. In this class, I actually had a 4.9 run, uh, which I did not pass with. But then I did uh, get a, another pretty strong run just over six seconds. But going in, you know, three or four years from that's impossible to uh, routinely shooting better than that. Um, you know, if you've taken a class with John and, and Melody and Chris, you know that the mental aspect is huge with them. And I'd like to hear what everybody else's thoughts are on um, how, how far, uh, you know, how far beyond your current grasp should you reach? How, how high should you set your sights? All right, Jamie, you're up first in the barrel for the answer. Wow, that's, <laughs> that's pretty loaded. Um, I really think that depends on what your personal goals are um, because you can have lots of aspirations, but if we have to start you at the bottom. I mean, just like you must walk before you run. And for the mental aspect of it, keeping our students positive is super important as well as myself. I'm, my friends call me the cheerleader because I'm super, um, not, I wouldn't say hyper, but I'm very uh, motivating and I try to keep everybody in a good mood even when, you know, somebody throws a shot or even if I throw a shot, I just, uh, whatever, go on, move on. So mental mindset is, is huge. Um, but for your personal aspirations, I really think that you need to take in um, consideration what your personal goals are. And it's important that you identify those goals and don't try to oversell yourself for something that you may not be able to accomplish. Like the first time that you went there, you were like, oh, that's impossible. Um, there's a test there for a reason. It's not impossible. It may be impossible at that moment, but you set a goal and you were able to accomplish that. All right, Mr. Holsham. So that's what I have. Oh, excuse me, Mr. Holsham. You know, that's uh leads me down a, a path kind of similar to some of your uh, questions last time. And that is, it, it follows on with what are your goals? And to me, it follows on with really, I go, I, I call it mission statement. Uh, why are we training and helping people understand that people have helping people examine that and decide for themselves, why are they training? What are their objectives? What are their goals? And I think that's important to do as a, instructor as as a teacher as kind of the the martial arts concept of sensei uh it's not just about being a coach on physical technique but what is it we're trying to accomplish if we spend x amount of time with you getting some particular physical performance to a certain level if that achieves what you're looking for if you're training for competition and gun games and that's what makes you happy 
awesome. I, I really hope I can help you do that or help you find people who can help you do that. At the same time, people come to us and they don't really know what they want. And well, they do generally, they want to feel safer and the people that I have coming to me. And so I need to set, help them set realistic physical goals and set aside time to develop the other aspects of their personality, mindset, uh, ability to think tactically, ability to handle the unknown situations. And so to make sure that they're well-rounded and that the time we're spending is efficient for what they want to achieve. And got to start by helping them figure out what that is. Howard? I, I really agree with John. I begin every class with asking the student, um, what, why are you here? What is your purpose for coming to this class? And overall, the majority say something like personal defense or home defense and don't really have any intention of carrying in the street. So I kind of try and guide the standards in my class based upon the needs of that particular group. Um, but I do agree. You have to kind of focus on what your personal goal is. It's like, I don't know anybody who goes into a gunfight and wants less ammo. I don't know anybody who goes into a gunfight and want less, wants less skill. So you want to be as good as you can be, but we recognize that the students that we're dealing with on the gateway level have limited time, limited resources, and limited ability to be able to come and train. So we just have to prioritize the things that you know we think are important. I, I agree with John. We kind of have to guide them into that mission of self-defense by telling them, listen, this is some basic standards of marksmanship. This is some basic standards for being able to draw from a holster and giving them those standards to, to strive toward, even though we're not going to be able to do that in this first class, at least all of it. Uh, it's where you're going. What is your plan after this class um, to get them to where they need to be to be a you know, reasonable self-defender? Jamie? I'm oh, sorry, Karen? What, the, other, the other girl yeah, in the room. Yeah, I'm looking at... <laughs> My screen's bouncing depending on who does what. So. Now I'm the, the other Whitlock yeah. and the other girl in the room. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Um, so the mental thing is huge. I actually was afraid you were going to ask my question, Tim, because um, my question is based on Lanny Bassam and mental management and with winning in mind, his book. Um, but I think at the intro level, particularly, I get a lot of people who have a lot of preconceived notions about what they can and can't do. So in terms of mental thought process for those folks, a lot of times I'm, I'm having to chip away at that, that idea that I can't do these certain things. So it's not a matter of they're trying to do too much. Sometimes it's, they come in thinking I can't do this, or this is too hard, or, you know, I'll never be able to do this thing. So you kind of going along with the Jamie, the cheerleader, you really have to pump them up to say, you know, I don't know who told you that you can't rack a slide or that you can't do this particular thing, whatever it is, but it's really not that difficult. Like take malfunctions, for example, or stoppages, you know, we get, or someone at some point may have told them that you don't want a semi-automatic because it's going to, it's going to have this constant problem, right? You're going to be constantly fixing it. And for me, you know, once you convince them that if you know how to load and unload the gun and maybe lock the slide back, you pretty much can fix anything that goes wrong with it. You know, once you plant that seed in their heads, then you've conquered a huge mental hurdle for them. So for me, for some, some of my students, it's more a matter of 
trying to pump them up versus trying to keep them from, from going too fast or too far too fast. That's an excellent way of looking at that. If you can unload load and unload the gun, you can fix any problem with it. It's true, right? Yeah, because how do you what how can't do you, you do? How do you maybe fix, a squib load, right? Well, yeah, <laughs> how, how do you fix a double feed? You unload the gun and you reload the gun. Right. You may need to lock it to the rear potentially, but yeah. All right, Mr. Steve. Well, uh, most of our students tend to be a little bit more mature. They tend to be uh, very much uh, mission driven. Uh, for instance, in reference to our church security uh, fundamentals and church security leader instructor classes, uh, they're there for a certain purpose. And that purpose is to provide a, uh, the ability to protect those who can't protect themselves in a house of worship. And so uh, the main thing that we're trying to do there is make them understand that active shooter response is actually only about 25% of dealing with the issue. There's all these other things that you need to get into place first that would either make that facility so it's unattractive to another person, or if that person were trying to get into the facility, uh, they would be intercepted and, uh, as we would say, assertively interviewed very you know, early into it. By the same token, the ability to use a gun in an environment like that is very, very important, uh, more so in many circumstances, simply because there's a high probability that if you're involved in a gunfight, uh, it's going to be within the confines of a structure with many other people around. And so the thing that we're trying to there is try to make that person the very best possible version of themselves with a very thorough understanding of all the risks that they may take and uh, the accountability that they, you know, they now have in their hands. Uh, in regard to our other class, uh, basically it's very street defense oriented, but we put a pretty high premium on uh, short range accuracy and with the ability to get that gun into play very quickly. And to that end, uh, we feel like it's important to go ahead and set up drills and uh, tests and such that are doable if you're willing to put in the time and invest that time. And so in terms of uh, performance pistol, uh, we're probably not teaching that much stuff anymore, but in terms of the stuff that we are, uh, again, our ultimate goal is to keep pushing that person to be you know, the very best version of themselves with the understanding that if you fail to keep this up and you fail to train, uh, those skills are gonna perish. All right. Tim, I'm actually going to deep dig deep into my training and conduct a cognitive interview on you very briefly because you answered your question in the way that you asked it. What did you focus on the first time John explained the drill to you? Uh, um, I, it was just the, the sheer difficulty level of that number of shots with two very precise shots and a presentation, I just, I did not have that level of confidence in my skills at that time. And it, it just appeared to be completely unrealistic. When you asked the question, you focused in on, he told you the part-time for advance was six seconds. Mm -hmm. So did you focus in on the result immediately or the process that was needed to get to that result? I was... I was results oriented then, and <laughs> that is a, 
Very clever, Sensei. Yes, I've uh, in the in the intervening years, I think I've progressed very far along the process-oriented path. Uh, you know, getting a good, solid, quick presentation, multiple shots, shifting gears. Uh, learned some transition work with Mr. Holshin at TACCON uh, this year. And uh, I, it's now it's, I, I, again, if I throw a shot on this, I just go, oh, okay, whatever. But, you know, the, the process focus to me is the key to really getting that, uh, that uh, you know, that higher level of performance. So when you focused on everything that you needed to do skill-wise, the results came. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. All right. Miss Jamie, your question. Um, have you ever been forced to fail a student? And if you have, um, do you have any a little like a little bit of background on it and you know what you did to either part of the mindset of your student? I had this come up recently and I know how I handle things like this personally. But it was interesting to me. I was in a big, large group of uh, men, no offense, and uh, instructors. And um, their take on it was much different than mine. And so I figured this panel would have more men on it than women. So I was just curious if you had ever experienced that. And um, did you end up changing anything in your curriculum as if like maybe it was something that you failed? Um, to show them in the classroom portion or in the lecture portion? Or was it something that you skipped over by chance that really is included and you just, you know, missed it somehow? Um, or if it was just something like a mechanical failure and they just wouldn't listen to you type of thing. So I was just curious uh, if anybody's done that and especially I'm interested to hear from the men on the panel. Mr. Holson. I teach, um... I teach Washington State Criminal Justice Training Commission courses uh, with some regularity. So that's bail bond recovery agents, uh, private investigators, and armed private security. And there is both a written test as well as a performance test, shooting qualification. So I have, with some degree of regularity, uh, facing students who fail to meet the minimum standard. Um, And it's the, the challenging thing, or what I find is the vast majority who fail are not anyone that I can fix quickly. And and the reason with that is the the vast majority who fail, fail to flinching, uh, pulling shots out of the the acceptable scoring zone uh, due to anticipation of the shot. And that to me, I've got some short-term things that I do when I become a flinch monster that can get me through, you know, a demo or get me through a call or get me through a competition uh but they don't really stick and there's it's it's something that takes time to fix and that's something that's very difficult to get in there and fix quickly so i think for me as an instructor what a lot of experience has taught me is which students i can create how much change in the amount of time available and that's even trickier when you only have them for a short period of time and they're going to shoot a call because if you change things and then they fail, it's your fault because you got in there and messed up how I usually do this. So it's a fine dance. It's an art uh, more than a science. And I think it really is uh, a case of assessing 
how much you how much change you can affect in what period of time you as the instructor knowing that the shooter has to do the work in the in the long term so uh, i always try and leave them with a path forward i leave them with the positive uh, all the positive comments i can give i point out what they're doing well i point out the drills that i believe will help them achieve and i try and give them a path to correct that uh, but in in reality um, Again, I, I, you know what you can. You have to know what you can do and what you can't do. Howard? Uh, well, in my practice in Ocala, we, we're a large retirement community. So we get a lot of older clients coming into these Florida concealed weapons permit classes. And one of the standards in Florida is that you have to safely be able to operate a pistol. So I've had occasions with several of my older male and, and female clients, but they couldn't operate the pistol. They just couldn't work the slide I, it, with an easy, with a revolver. They just did not have the grip strength to be able to do it. But I don't think they failed. I just said that, you know, this is a part of this program that you can't have a certificate for. And we give them other options. One of the big parts of that is teaching them how to use OC spray and pepper spray. Um, if they can't adequately control the pistol, if they can't adequately load and unload the pistol, then I just let them know that this this is just not for you. I know I know your husband died and you're 79 years old and now you feel insecure in your home, but this is not going to be the tool that's going to be able to save you because you can't handle it properly. But uh, they sit through the class, they enjoy the class, and if they would like, I will work with them in the future um, to try and develop their grip strength and help them. You know, you've taken the class already, I'll come back and work with me. But um, we don't necessarily fail them. They just don't get a certificate so that they, so that they can get their uh, permit. Um, and they, by the time we get done with them, they completely understand that it's not safe for them, right, to have a gun that they can't operate. And uh, so far, the response has been pretty good. The, the older people that we've, I've had to not give a certificate to have all understood clearly why they couldn't have That's an interesting take as well. And the fact that they're learning that this is not the best option is actually a valuable lesson in and of itself. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Miss Whitlock. Um, yeah, so in Georgia, we do not have a class requirement, so I don't really have a pass-fail situation. I will agree with Howie. Um, for some reason, I, I get a lot of older students, and they have that same issue. Like, they want to come in, and they they really are – wanting to do this thing and they want they see the need to have to be able to defend that or to need to be able to defend themselves and for whatever reason arthritis carpal tunnel strength they just cannot they can't rack any slide they can't press the trigger on a revolver it's tough so you have to have that conversation of this is just not the tool for you you know because you people generally think it's for everybody but it's not um but that being said i do uh, I am a training counselor for USCCA, so I have had instructor candidates come through, and I've had to fail a couple of them, which is is tough too because these people have invested a lot of money, and I think the assum the assumption is you know at the end of the day that they're going to walk away and be able to start teaching classes and whatnot, and that's just not the reality. Um, for for each of them, I offered them the the choice or the chance to come back and, and I would work with them and, you know, let them like co-teach with me, or we'd work through the issues that they had privately. 
Um, for example, one of them was just, you know, she could shoot and, you know, she had been in the Navy and for some reason, military experience, they think that they can just do this thing, but not always the case, no offense. Um, but like simple things like being able to explain safety rules, you know, I think people get caught up in wanting to have them perfectly, um, spoken word by word, the way they are in the curriculum, but if you can't explain it in your own words, I feel like you really don't know it. So for me and those students, I really want them to be able to explain it in their own words. So little things like that, if they can't do that, and then they sort of struggle on the shooting qualification, then they're automatically going to be asked to, to do some side coaching or, or try to get them to a point to where they can pass. And I've had, I think two people, take me up on that. And they were successful. Um, one of them was just, he was not happy that he did not pass. And, um, actually USCCA ended up refunding his money just to smooth the waters. But, you know, I, for me, I can't put my name on them and have them go out and teach other people because if they don't, if I don't feel comfortable with what they're saying and doing, you know, it's, it's tough. Cause you want to be, you want everyone to succeed. And then when they don't, it, you, you do feel like you may have maybe failed them in some way, but you know, if you, if they'll come back and do some coaching with you, then, then that seems to help seems to be the good solution. Mr. Moses. Well, actually in our very last class, we had to fail two students and uh, it was unfortunate. We hated to do that, but it was a necessary thing uh, with both of them. We worked with them, uh, throughout pretty heavily throughout the class. And uh, we explained to them why it was important that they be able to pass this test. And when they were not able, we went ahead and we said, okay, well now you'd have a goal to work on. And this is something that you can do. Uh, we give them a little bit of you know, suggestions on maybe what they could do to you know, perhaps uh, enhance their performance going forward if they wish to. Uh, in a nutshell though, we really believe that that's important, especially with people that are going to put themselves in a position where they're running a gun around other people in a confined environment and everything. So we just think that's absolutely important. Uh, we've had no pushback on that. Uh, but again, I think it's just really important to say, well, you know, you now know that there is a hole in your game that you weren't aware of before that you just discovered before something irreversible happen. And so, you know, let's consider this a good day. And I also go ahead and confide into them that uh, a lot of where I am today came from failure in classes and tests and drills in the past where I identified a place where I, I didn't have the strengths that I had. And uh, that's what inspired me to go work on it. And as a result, I think I became the uh, better for it, both in terms of an instructor and just as an everyday concealed carrier. Mr. Reedy. Um, excellent question, Jamie. Uh, and my Texas license to carry classes, I have been teaching for about 11 years. And in those 11 years, I think I have had six or maybe seven people not pass the shooting qualification on their first try. Uh, and almost every single case here, it was just, uh, it was either a, uh, having zero experience with firearms, even though this isn't a how to shoot class, which is very clear up front, but still people go, yeah, I could just show up and take it. 
Uh, and in one case, it was a woman who was shooting a little two inch snubby with about a 12 pound trigger pull. And she could not hold the muscle anywhere on target while trying to yank that trigger. Uh, but in each case, uh, with all seven of those students, uh, we did some coaching, uh, just uh, in most cases, about 20 to 30 minutes of coaching on recoil anticipation, trigger press, and all of them passed very easily on their second try. Uh, so there was no you know, permanent fail or not, not passing on that. Um, and it's, that's, that's a tough one when somebody does it. And I like what the other folks have talked about saying, you know, come back, let's do some private coaching. Here are some drills you can work on, uh, things like that. Um, it, it's, it's tough to uh, do that without really souring somebody and, and kind of just putting them off taking any more training. So uh, it's, you know, it's one of those things, but for, for safety issues, especially, I've, I have never had to fire a student for safety violations, but uh, there have been a time or two where it's been close until it was made very clear, you know, this is, this is not optional, but the, uh, you know, the shooting performance stuff is, uh, you know, the rules are the rules there. All right. Very much like Karen, I teach in Georgia, and we don't have a state training requirement to get the weapons carry license. Of course, as of this legislative session, we don't have the requirement to get a weapons carry license any longer. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, I don't teach, you know, license to carry type courses. Uh, I do run qualification courses for Georgia peace officers on a regular basis, uh, sometimes on a weekly basis. And that's a known standard that they have to meet, and they know going in that they have to get a score on the test. And it's not anything that I have any say-so in. It's whether or not the, the shots are where they need to be and they got them in the correct amount of time. And so mm -hmm. usually they know by the time they go up and look at their target, they know whether or not they've passed. And so it's not like it's something where I'm having to break it to someone you didn't make it. Uh, I have had one occasion in which... Um, a deputy did fail to qualify numerous times and I took his firearm away from him and put him in a position which he was not allowed to carry a firearm and sent him through remedial training numerous times and one of the other instructors took him down to the range and came back well he shot a qualifying score so we'll take him back and see if it, make sure it wasn't a fluke because in my opinion if you fail, 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 fail. Oh, I shot a qualifying score. You haven't proven that you qualified. Mm -hmm. And so they took him back down to the range and guess what? That time he didn't qualify. And so uh, we sent him to outside training with the state training facility and he got kicked out of the class there for a safety violation. And at nice. that point I had to tell him, you no longer will be a deputy sheriff. Um, you may work in this other position because there's one available. We're not creating a position for you. We have this one that you can move into. Um, but at the time that impacted his retirement because he went from a position that was eligible for the peace officer annuity benefit fund to one that wasn't. And so that's kind of a hard thing to do. And in that case, it was kind of a subjective thing on me because he didn't meet the state standard. But I felt like I had to meet a, a moral and ethical standard as I'm not going to let this guy go on the street carrying a gun, knowing what I know. 
and that that can get a little spicy and a little difficult but you also said something in the way that you asked the question that prompts one from me you said your take was different from the men so how was your take different from the men um my take was different in being kind of like what john said we take a little you know we take the positive and put it back in there me it's for my for me and my students it's very important that i don't break their spirits and sometimes whenever you make an example of someone in class, which is what all these men had suggested that I do, um, when you isolate them like that, in my experience, especially with new students, you, you make them feel embarrassed and all of these feelings and they don't wanna come back. They don't even wanna stay. And so I was like, no, this is, we're running this the way I run it what I do we're not discussing it we can talk about it later um, so that was my take and everyone on this panel is in the it's on the same page as I am you guys put the positive back in you want to do remedial trainings you want to come in do private lessons with them or maybe work with them like 10 like an extra 30 minutes or so on the side and um, but I think what I was experiencing was what's a lot a different level of instructors. I'll all just right. put it that way. We're all range master instructors here. So um, we have a little bit more training, more advanced training in a lot of things. And um, just as with an instructor development in itself. And we all understand it's important that we need to keep our students um, positive and their mindsets, um, you know, moving forward and not going backwards. All right. And that was the issue that I had. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Mr. Holshin, you're up with your question. So I own and operate a uh, public range, an indoor range, and therefore a lot of my students are recruited from, from that background. And I get a fair number of folks who come in and they will, on their own, uh, they'll put a full-size uh, silhouette at three yards maybe. Uh, say two to four and uh, get up there and crank off how many of rounds there are in the gun and typically um, there's about that many holes in the target often minus one particularly if it's a double action single action gun and they're just they're absolutely just ecstatic if every bullet hit the target they think well that was effective and I know how I go about talking about anatomy and, and effective hits and that sort of thing but I just would like to hear from other people. Does anybody have any kind of shortcuts, so to speak, in kind of realigning the expectations of what is adequate speed and accuracy? And just how have you found a quick way to reach students to bring them to that idea that, uh, you know, I, I use the, the saying that if somebody needs shot, when do you, if somebody, the only reason we're shooting people is because they're trying to kill you or someone you care about. When do you want them to quit? A minute ago. I can't achieve a minute ago, so as soon as possible. So I can get them thinking, oh, yeah, I guess I do need to look at time. Uh, but if we get up there as an instructor and we shoot and our speed and accuracy is so far removed from what these students are and they have nothing to compare it to, I think sometimes they think we're just freaks. We're just, you know, that has, that, that has nothing to do with them. 
And so I continue to look in, in my quest of constant improvement as an instructor for ways to more uh, quickly and succinctly reach students on this topic. And interested to hear your ideas. All right, Howard, you're up first. Well, I, working as the Chief Range Safety Officer R&D Tactical, you see some of the most horrendous shooting by the public. Uh, I have to agree with John. It's just, it's absolutely horrible. So in my class, I've taken to showing active self-protection videos, uh, particularly the ones where you've needed multiple shots to stop people and people who've been shot and kept coming um, to let them know that, you know, handguns are not the best tool for the job. <laughs> you know, a shotgun would be, be a lot better. And when you watch these videos of these people coming, John has one where uh, a man is going after a female officer and she had to shoot him 12 times to get him to stop. Um, There's another one where a woman was in a home defense situation, shot the man twice in the shoulder and he didn't stop either. They get the feeling that, you know, you have to be good at this, that marksmanship is important with handguns. You have to put these, uh, you know, handguns to make holes. You have to put them in the right place in order to stop the person. And I found those to be very effective. When I've shown those videos, uh, the people have always been shocked, particularly the video of uh, the uh, people who got killed over the snow. I don't know if you guys have seen that one on active self-protection, but a man is arguing with, a couple is arguing with a man over moving snow, and um, he goes into the house, gets a gun, and shoots at him six times. They don't move, and then he shoots a lady in the head and shoots the man twice. Then he goes back in the house, gets a rifle, comes back and, and does it again because they're still alive. And it really makes a statement to them that, listen, these handguns are not you know, movie, you know, it's not one shot, one kill with these handguns. You have to actually be good with them in order for them to be effective. Okay. I kind of basically do what Howie does. Um, dispel the myth that it's just going to be one shot. Cause I do think the general public comes in and they think, well, I just need one shot and that's going to take care of it. And they're going to fall out and no longer be a threat or they're going to run away or, I'm going to just do my shotgun and they're going to hear the sound of it. And that's going to be the end of that. You know, how many times have you heard that? Um, so in the classes, I, same as Howie, I highly recommend that we don't necessarily watch the videos, but I recommend that they go home and watch some of the active self-protection stuff um, or even um, just mentally, like some mental training, like watch things that happen on the news, carjackings, things like that. That, that you hear about on the news and put yourself in that position and think, you know, what would I have done in that position? What would I have done differently? And I think just creating sort of that mental image of it's going to take a little bit more than you just pulling out your gun and, you know, making a noise of the slide or the shotgun or whatever, and they're going to run away. Um, but as far as the accuracy goes, I don't know if I have a great answer for it. I do know I've recently started doing more demoing in my classes, even the beginner class where it seems like you shouldn't really have to, um, you know, demo such a basic thing, but I'd literally demo everything I have them do in that class. And that seems to have made a big difference because one, it sort of inoculates them against that initial noise and they kind of see how, how that's going to go and, and what to expect. And it takes some of the nervousness out of it. And then they can start focusing more on, the accuracy and whatnot, or they actually see sort of the pace or what kind of accuracy we're looking for. And that helps as well. But I guess I don't have an original answer. Me and Howie are doing the same thing. <laughs> All right, Mr. Moses. 
Well, we start off every class we do talking about the difference between psychological stops and physiological stops. With psychological stops, uh, dude stops because he wants to, and physiological stops, he, uh, he stops because he has no choice but to stop. He's literally shut down. Talk a little bit how that's accomplished. Uh, we tend to do quite a bit of uh, frequent use of uh, tactical anatomy type targets. I like the one I download the one that Aaron Cowan has that actually shows the spine and the heart and the lung uh, area will, you know, have the target, the students do that. And as I look over Jamie's right shoulder right now, I see a 3D humanoid target that we actually used in a, a church security instructor class that we used in that particular class where we said, okay, you can kind of see where the spine is, where the upper thoracic area is and everything and target that area. So for us, uh, we think maybe the most effective way that we can do that is to go ahead and actually use, you know, visual depictions of where you need to shoot if indeed your objective is to stop that person as soon as you can. Tim? Uh, in the Texas License to Carry class, of course, we use the B-27 target, which is <clears throat> about as terrible a self-defense training target as one can get. And I talk to the students beforehand and I say, you know, this is the, this is the target we're going to classify on. And this is your point of aim, which is essentially the navel on a normal size, on a normal size person. And that's a terrible idea. That's not a fight stopping area. And I talk about the high thoracic and the central nervous system as being a fight stopping area. Um, and one of the things we do, again, I show a John Correa video in there, and it's the uh, Brazilian cop who pulls into his garage and then has the three guys come in after him. And one guy with a gun in his hand opens his door and he gets five shots from about two feet away in the belly button area. And I point that out to the students and I say, this guy just took five rounds at two feet in the, in the belly button area and the X-ring of this target we're gonna be using and what did he do? He hung onto his gun and he ran away. That also means that he could have hung onto his gun and said, well, oh yeah, here's some for you. It is not a fight stopping area. Um, and in class uh, for uh, some folks too, I have some cert uh, trainers that I use and I put them at four yards and we work on getting quick hits on a B8 and then precise hits on a one inch square and show them that they can actually get those hits in a reasonable amount of time uh, without the distraction of the live fire and everything like that. And then one final thing I do is uh, during the mindset portion of classes is I point them to Dr. William April's lectures on the PDN network and talking about violent criminal actors and how to recognize and understand and prepare yourself mentally for what you may be facing and why it's so important to be able to stop someone physiologically very quickly. Jamie? Kind of like Howie with videos um, as representations, visuals. Um, I do a lot of these type of targets, um, these 3D targets or something that they can visually see. Um, John, I don't have anything super quick. I just, uh, like Karen, I do a lot of demos even in my basic classes. Um, and it's really because I want them to visually see where I'm actually aiming and getting the hits. So it's not anything magical. Um, I just think that visual um, representation of what the body really looks like and where the spine, high thoracic, CNS, um, how we shut down things is very important. And we 
just talk about it. We just don't, and I don't use any of those B27s. Thankfully, I'm not required to either. <laughs> Yeah, target selection can have a lot to do with that. Uh, we don't use the V27 here in Georgia, but the, the state qualification target that for the Peace Officer Standard Training Commission has an 8 by 10 A zone on it. And that's just completely unrealistic uh, for what we need to be getting for effective hits as part of the No Cop Left Behind program. Um, we don't use the state target. We use one with a more stringent scoring area. Uh, for our qualifications. Um, we use the T by T target that I designed and I actually give them the eight inch circle for the, yeah, was one hanging up behind you. Uh, um, we actually use the eight inch circle for the A zone, but it has that four by six, which draws everybody's eyes into that. They're trying to put them in that four by six instead of the eight inch circle. Um, it's, I think a lot of it has to do with just explaining the expectations up front. Uh, now, I don't deal with the same, you know, off the street basic students that, that a lot of you guys are seeing uh, in either my private business or uh, through, the, through the sheriff's office. So I'm not necessarily having that same issue that you guys are having. Uh, the guys that come to my private business are folks that have sought me out for, for whatever reason. And we're establishing time and accuracy standards right from the start. And, you know, that, that expectation is there to meet them. Right. Did everybody get a chance to answer that one? I thought we went around everybody. All right. Okay. Howard, your question. Well, that's good. I'm glad that uh, Jamie and Karen are here because my question is about women. Um, just coming back from the mingle, I'm passionate about uh, training women. And my classes have been half full with women um, for the past two years. My question is, how can I get them to come back? Uh, often I, I talk to them and they enjoy the first part of class and they enjoy shooting the gun. And then I literally never see them again. <laughs> I see them in town and they, and they, you know, they enjoy the experience, but um, they're just not interested in this as a hobby. And uh, I, I, they're not where they need to be, but they don't want to come back. They feel like they're done after the first class. And I was wondering if you guys had any techniques, not just Jamie and Karen, but what techniques do you use, particularly with women, to get them to come back for more training? All right, Karen, you're up. That is a tough one. That um, I, I don't know if it's unique to women, but I can kind of see where that happens. I think for a lot of people, the the thought process is: I've taken this one class, I've conquered the learning process of physically how to use this gun. And I'm good, you know? Um, so I struggle with it as well because I, my basic class is kind of divided into three segments and I don't nearly have nearly as many people come to the level two as we're in the level one. So it's, I think some of it is, we just think we've learned how to do the thing. We're good. But in the class, I try to impress upon them. It's a little bit like driving a car. And I know we've all heard that analogy, but you know, the first time you got behind the wheel of the car, when you were 15 years old or 16, whatever it was, your parents didn't toss you the keys and go, Hey, you're good. Go, go take off to Florida. You're good. You have to keep working at it, you know? And of course you probably drove somewhere today and you didn't think anything of it. And the good thing, this is the speech I give them, obviously, but the good thing about guns is 
you know, you don't have to take 30 years to be really good at doing the thing, but you do have to give a little effort to it. And I usually tell them, you know, if, if they'll commit to coming twice a month to the range for maybe three months, um, you know, not that they'll be excellent at that point, but they'll be shocked at how much more confident and competent they are using that firearm and dealing with it than they are today in this class. And I think if you kind of impress upon them that, that there is a learning curve, but it's not quite as steep as they might think it is and that they need to continue on that might help, but it's, it is a struggle, but I think it's, it's not necessarily just women, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a struggle. Mr. Moses? Well, we really don't uh, distinguish much between uh, men and women in that regard in that we just, you know, try to make it very clear to our students that we're the product of uh, having taken many classes and having many instructors. I think I've taken at least three classes from John Holson, you know, just as I sit here. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I would be anywhere close to the uh, the shooter and the uh, instructor that I am had I not taken classes from other people. And so I encourage them to just, you know, understand that, okay, hey, we've kind of given you a look here. This is just kind of the way that we see it. Uh, if you told us you wanted to take all of your classes from us, we'd be disappointed. We'd want you to get out there and kind of diversify because for me, especially again, being the slow student that I am, I've had to take a lot of classes from a lot of people to finally kind of just, you know, meld together something that would work for me that I could explain to others. And so that's probably the way that I'd approach that. Mr. Reedy. Well, I, uh, I don't claim any special insight into the women's point of view, even though I do wear a kilt, which is kind of sort of like a skirt. Um, <laughs> but uh, Howie, a couple of things you might consider, uh, if you haven't already read it, uh, Carl Wren's Beyond the One Percent, uh, he's, he's got that in several different formats and it really, uh, he's done some in-depth study into why people continue to train and why they don't. And uh, two of the things that he's done uh, that he mentions that I try to do is one of them in all of my scheduled classes, my classes with a, you know, like my uh, LTC class or my defensive handgun one or my holster success class, uh, any class that a student has taken, they can retake for half off. And I, I stress to students that, you know, I've, I've taken some classes many times and I've learned something new each time. I have one young lady who's taken my holster success class three times and she's gone from a three and a half second concealed draw to a one and a half second concealed draw over the course of those three classes. And this is all with loner gear and loner guns. And um, that, and then the other aspect is adding a little bit of a social aspect to it. Um, you know, I don't know what uh, what kind of things work well, but with our IDPA matches, uh, you know, we stayed up front at the shooters meeting. After the match is over, we're all meeting for lunch at a nearby Mexican restaurant. And, uh, you know, if you can't get people to, to stick around for tacos, I think they're gone forever. So anyway, uh, that's that's my input. Jamie? Um, for me, I, I kind of understand where you're going with that. And, it, and it, I agree with Karen too, that it, it's not just females 
because I see a lot of guys do the same thing too. And it could be just me. They don't want to come back to me. I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I try. Um, the social aspect is real important for females. Um, they also want to feel very welcomed coming back um, and while they're there. And I know they may say, yeah, I had a great time and I learned a lot and that was it. Um, but they may have different feelings deep down inside. They still may have some insecurities. Um, you may add, you know, a female, I don't know if you already have one, you know, to your, uh, like an RSO or somebody to help AI in the class that might help kind of break that barrier um, with you. I do that with males. I bring in uh, male RSOs in some of my classes and other AIs just to kind of help even it out a little bit. Um, I also, uh, like Tim, encourage them to do other things outside of the class, like matches, um, socializing. We do like family day at the range and just just a little bit of different things just to kind of bring them in more um, to socialize and to get to know each other. I also um, encourage, uh, I'm very energetic typically, and so... Um, I'm very positive and just kind of reinforce all of those good qualities and things that they're learning and like Karen encourage them to come back and that they still need to continue their training. Um, follow up with them again, offer them something at a discount if they want to come back and repeat it or retread it. Um, we say we do a lot of that in my area. We have a lot of instructors that offer that if you want to come back and do it, it's half price or sometimes no cost or comp a class for them or just something to try to get them um, back in. But I, I do understand um, the struggle that you're that you're facing. Women are tough. All right, John. So I'm going to give you kind of a two part uh, answer here. The first part is if you're not already using it, I encourage you to use a course critique. Uh, give them a method to turn in a anonymous course critique just to make sure there isn't something you're unaware of that is providing some some inhibition or some, some concern. And uh, I, I expect not, but you don't know if you don't ask. And sometimes it's something that you just never thought of, and uh, and it, it, it's easy to fix. So if you're not using a course critique, I, I strongly recommend that. Uh, the second thing that I do is, I, I don't know how this compares to other folks, but I grew up, grew up in the training business with two-day defensive handgun classes, and now running my own range, I'm able to, I, I tried an experiment of, what if I broke my typical two-day defensive handgun class into four-hour blocks? And uh, my hope was that people, it would be more accessible. It would be easier to schedule, certainly less expensive, uh, less of a commitment, and that people would practice in between the segments and actually come away with greater proficiency. Unfortunately, more people go away for months and do nothing, and I end up doing more review, so you struggle to maintain the same proficiency. But where this is relevant to your question is early on throughout the day, I tell them that. I tell them that it's pretty much the standard across the United States for a civilian defensive carry to, to cover everything we need to do. And I talk about physical skills. I talk about developing mental attributes and I talk about understanding the legalities of use of force. And that it takes about two days to give a reasonable grounding in those things. And we're broke that up into four hour blocks. And, and 
you're here for this first one. It's awesome. It's exciting. We're going to have a great time and you're going to learn a lot. Uh, but it is the first quarter of a program. And so I set those expectations throughout. Uh, I talked to them. I do expert witness work. And I've also had the misfortune of being subpoenaed a couple of times to testify in court uh, based on training that I had provided people. And uh, in both cases, it was people who had taken my literally the class that I have for people that don't even own firearms yet, the introduction to handguns and firearm safety, who then went out and got in, in trouble. And I had to answer to the court, why didn't I teach them about legalities? Why didn't I teach them about the, the various things? So I point that out to them. I point out that I hate it when a good person finds himself in trouble with the law because they didn't know any better because of ignorance. And that if they're going to, that I purposefully have the first class for people who don't want to contemplate that, who only want to get into the aspects of safety or, or possibly the mechanics of shooting and the joy of the precision. Uh, but there's no self-defense content in that. And if you're going to have a gun for self-defense, you owe it to yourself and the other people that you have responsibility to, to understand the legalities and ramifications. And that is in our second class. So I build throughout the day or throughout the, the first four hours that these are the expectations of the things that you'll get in the second class. And in the third class, because time does matter from the decision someone's trying to kill you to the time that you apply what you hope will be a solution, the time matters. We need to do it succinctly. So I build that in throughout. And then the last 10 minutes, it's reviewed. And I actually have a couple of slides where I go over, even in that fundamental class now, that is for people who don't yet own a gun, I throw a couple of legal concepts up there just because they're things that people have gotten in trouble with. And I point out that we'll do more of this. I point out in the physical aspect, I use driving analogy a lot. I've uh, done some racing and some, some other performance driving stuff. And that even as just driving around, I tell them, I don't remember learning to drive, but I taught my kids to drive not that long ago. And it was really to me to see how much mental effort they had to put into getting the car to stop where they wanted it to stop, how much steering input to put in, how much thought goes into it. And now you do all that automatically, which frees you up, hopefully not to daydream, but to notice the kids playing soccer next to the road and anticipate the ball could come in the road so that when it does, you don't have to think about how to get the car to go where you want and stop where you want. And that they need enough repetition with the firearm that they have a similar degree of, of performance with the firearm as with the car, that it doesn't take all this mental effort. So I guess my point is that I build throughout that first four hours in a very conversational tone. This is what we're going to accomplish. And this is where you want to go ultimately. And this is where you'll get that other piece of it. Uh, Hope that helps. I had to stifle a laugh when Karen said when people learn to drive at 15 or 16. Uh, when I was 12, I found a copy of the Georgia Driver's Manual and they had the laws in it. And I read in there that you could drive it without a license for agricultural purposes. And I just declared anywhere I wanted to go to be for an agricultural purpose and may have driven a Ford pickup truck in lots of places without having a driver's license. Maybe. And old enough to get. <laughs> but it was for farm purposes and farm purposes only. There you go. Um, uh, how I will refer you to the episode that uh, Tim and Rick Remington were on, on teaching newbies, where we get into that. I will also echo the uh, 
Carl Renz beyond the 1% thing. And I really think it goes to, to uh, we'll come back to you just a second, Tim. Uh, I really think it goes to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And as you get the people that are looking just for that bottom level of need satisfied, they came to the class because the state of Florida says that they have to go to this class to get their carry license, then that's all you're going to get them for. But if you can tap into people's wanting to have a sense of belonging or a sense of accomplishment, and you can kind of whet that appetite in your in your first contact when you get to them, you can get those people back. And I learned a very important lesson teaching at the Mingle this weekend is selfies. Lots and lots and lots of selfies if you have women involved. Yes, do like a class <laughs> picture at the end. They would love that. It was amazing. I finally, uh, Karen was helping on the range and it's finally like, all right, go take your selfies and then go load your magazines and be back on the line at such and such a time. I posted that on Facebook and it's got 360 responses to it so far. So apparently, uh, and it's all been humorous and positive. So apparently that hit a nerve, but that goes to the social belonging and the social aspect of it. Tim, you had a follow-up comment? Uh, yes, I did, Howie. One other resource which I found to be outstanding is Kathy Jackson, thecorneredcat.com, her website and her book. Uh, she was actually one of the very first lecturers I took at my very first TACCON back in 2014, I think. And it was about making women feel welcome in the training world. And uh, I still have my notes from that and they, uh, they're just outstanding. All right, Miss Whitlock, your question. Let's go. My dogs are barking, so of course. <laughs> but let's talk practice. So I, like I mentioned, big fan of Lanny Bassam with winning in mind. And what he recommends in terms of practice, of course, it's from a competitive or competition viewpoint. But he recommends to practice no more than four to five times a week. And I see a lot of people on the internet in the different dry fire groups or whatnot. It looks like they're practicing every single day. So I just wanted to find out from you guys, assuming you're a busy person and you're working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, what does your practice week actually look like? What, what, or maybe what does it actually look like? And what would you like it to look like? All right, Mr. Moses, you're up first. Well, I'm actually one of those guys that probably practices four or five times a week. Uh, I'm in kind of a good position. I'm semi-retired, uh, live out in the country. Uh, however, that practice uh, invariably is going to be dry practice. And it's something that I almost look forward to doing every day. Uh, typically go out there and probably do more than, no more than maybe 15 to 20 repetitions at various distances. Uh, my main thing is, is I want to work on uh, my concealed draw. I want to work on my grip and I want to work on my trigger control. And uh, again, it's something that for me, it's almost like uh, achieving a Zen-like state where I'm actually looking forward to it. Uh, I'm living very much in the present at the moment, which is nice to not be having to think about other things. So I'm a big fan of uh, constant practice. Uh, by the same token, I don't believe uh, that it does, you're, you're doing yourself a favor by getting in a bunch of repetitions. I think at some point, just as soon as it gets just a little bit, okay, I've got to get in one more that it loses its value. So uh, I typically uh, dry practice, you know, four to five times a week. And I try to uh, get out to the range, shoot maybe 50 to hundred rounds uh, once to once a week or at the, at the, at the least, at least twice a month. Uh, 
Tim? I'm retired and I have plenty of time and I hardly do any dry practice at all, except when it is to specifically unlearn a bad habit or practice a new skill. Uh, at that class that I took with Citizens Defense Research recently, Melody pointed out that I'm still clearing my cover garment and then throwing it back down and then bringing my hand back up to join. And uh, that's something I need to put a camera up and practice until it becomes unconscious or overlearned. And, uh, you know, my my draw, everything else, I've, I've got a few things that I really do need to work on. My reloads could be timed with a sundial. Um, draws pretty good, um, but, you know, transitions and my movement uh, and especially my reloads are just atrocious. Let me <clears throat> stay positive here. My reloads and my transitions and my movement uh, have lots of opportunities for improvement and I will, uh, I, I need to dry practice those because, you know, in a match, it's not the time to practice what you're, you're trying to improve and trying to change. So I am, I am not the poster child for dry practice, sadly, even though I encourage it strongly to all of my students. And they're probably going to watch this and go, what a damn hypocrite. What a fraud. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie? Um, well, for me, dry practice, it kind of varies on what I have coming up. Um, for me, that's kind of how I gauge what I want to work on. I try to focus on one thing at a time. I don't try to do it all. Um, but when I do my dry practice, um, typically I would do it two to three times a week on a regular schedule. Right now, my life is a little hectic with my husband. He recently broke his pelvis. Um, but typically, um, I break it up with my airsoft guns because those are fun and I get to put holes in targets outside. I live out in the country, but I still don't do live fire out here. Um, so I like that. Um, that kind of gives me a little visual. It's a little bit more fun. I kind of can get in my zen um, indoors for my regular dry practice, um, just on my little targets and things I have set up in my room. I just 10, 15 minutes um, at most. If I do more than that, um, I, lose, I lose focus. Um, I get tired because I'm actually working hard and my, my arms get tired. Um, it should be a physical thing for you if you're doing it right. Um, but typically on a normal schedule, it'd be two or three times. Now, if I have a big match coming up, I'll practice every night, every night. So just kind of depends on where I'm at. All right, John. Hope if I unmute. Um, so I, I'm a fan. I am a fan of Dustin Solomon and uh, his book, Building Shooters on Training. Um, I differentiate between are we learning or are we practicing, uh, are we, are we training? And that's very different. And you definitely benefit. I, I'm absolutely convinced from downtime in between, uh, you, you need downtime to process new material at the same time, kind of back to my driving analogy. I want enough repetitions of things that they happen, uh, you know, absolute automaticity. And that is pure repetition. Um, and so I don't believe that you have to, 
uh, leave a day in between that sort of thing to be when you are practicing skills that you've already acquired. Um, I personally have had a lot of success with multiple short sessions a day when I'm in a position to where I can dry fire uh, five minutes a day or excuse me, five minute sessions, uh, three to four to five times a day. Uh, I've, I've seen some enormous increases in my performance from engaging in that sort of thing. And I will tend to mix it up unless I'm really working something hard. And even then I would remind myself to mix it up. So I might work, uh, you know, presentations to the target, um, on all of those sessions in one day. Uh, but then the next day I'm working something else. If I'm going to do that same schedule of dry practice, um, and then again, sometimes I'll mix it up within the day as well. It's just kind of, I, I think there's an individual aspect of that over time, watching yourself and seeing what works and fine tuning it for yourself as you go. It's a little more difficult when you're trying to apply it to other people. Then I, I tend to be more, uh, take a more formularic approach. Uh, but for myself, I, I really do it a lot on kind of how I feel about it at the time and whether it feels like I'm accomplishing what I want to accomplish or, or not. Howard? Uh, one of the, the benefits of working at a range and not owning it is that I could just go in early in the morning and just shoot. So I get to do a little bit of dry practice every morning when I get there and I do about 50 rounds, uh, about four or five times a week. And then depending upon like Jamie, where I'm going or what my goals are, it changes my practice schedule. So if I'm going to a Gabe White class, I'm, I'm working those tests. <laughs> if I'm going to Scott Zetlinski's class, I'm working those black belt standards. Um, but that's about yeah, I, every four or five days I'm getting I'm getting to the range. And if I'm going to the range, I'm shooting that day. All right. Well, you know, my standard is pretty simple. As long as I'm good enough to beat John Hearn, I'm doing OK. And since I typically can meet that standard without a lot of work, uh, I don't have to do a lot of practice. And uh, <laughs> it's a good thing Tim's mic was on mute or we would have gotten that laugh he just came out. Uh, but seriously, I don't do a lot of regular, what you would call it, you know, an organized practice session. Uh, I'm on the range enough teaching now that my demos for my students pretty well keep me up to speed. And if I want to work something specific, I just get to the range, you know, 30 minutes before the students would show up and go work, work a couple of drills or something just to make sure I'm ironed out. Or if I need to test some gear or make something, you know, certain something zeroed or something like that. Uh, if I've got something coming up, I might go work and do some stuff. But if say I go a couple of weeks stretch without being able to get to the range for a class or, or whatever, I do have drop five targets set up in my office and I will secure my actual duty carry gun and I get a inert piece of plastic out and put it in my holster and I work some presentations to the target just to keep it recent in my mind. I do think that you need to do something uh, to keep the synapses all fired up a couple of times a month at least you know a couple of three times a month to stay in um, any kind of recency now again I, I was being a little bit facetious with the john stuff but really not I, i'm not going out and shooting competitive matches um, so i'm not trying to work towards hitting some super skill level now occasionally like when i wanted to start experimenting with the red dot uh, I did go shoot some IDPA matches and stuff just because I wanted to do some non-square range things. And so I went and did some practice sessions specifically with the dot and trying to learn that skill 
And I kind of go with what John was saying. There's a difference between learning a skill and practicing. And I did some specific dry work for that on a regular basis, um, you know, with some plans there. But I don't have a specific routine. Now, I will say that dry fire in and of itself, as far as the actual manipulation of the trigger dry fire, I find no value in. Um, because psychologically, I know the gun's not going to go off and I've never missed a shot in dry fire. Uh, John and I were, were fortunate enough to be part of a group that went to a class with Larry Mudgett last September. And his skip loading drill has become this completely compl replaced any kind of dry fire work that I would do. And since we now do that every time I take students to the range and I demo that, that's my putting my money in the bank. And it's kind of funny that on today we're recording this. Uh, there's a budget class that started today, and four of the 12 students in that class that I know of, and it may be more than that ratio, four of that 12 signed up because of the review that we did when we went to that class. And I know Tim just went to it in April, along with several of his guys, and they went because of that. So it's, uh, I was told by one of the students that it came up in the class about who was here because of the podcast episode, John. So uh, it's fun to me to see how that is spreading uh, back throughout Absolutely. the farm industry. And maybe, hopefully, it gives him some invigoration to keep going for a while. Yeah. Absolutely. At least to give everybody on the panel a chance to get out there and take a class from it. All yeah, right. It's uh, definitely on my list. There you go. Uh, Mr. Moses, your question. All right. If you had less than three minutes to explain to the average concealed carrier how to fix their pre-ignition flinch when gripping a semi-automatic pistol, what would you say? Well, it's a good thing that's an easy question because Tim's up. And uh, Three minutes to explain. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, so uh, two things, essentially. Um, grip really, really tight support hand grip. And then secondly, uh, well, let's see, we had three things, right? Secondly, uh, with the trigger press, take up the slack and smoothly press it to the rear. I've, I've had a lot of students lately who've been having some real, uh, in this last license to carry class, a lot of recoil anticipation. And the, the, the phrasing I've been using with them recently is, you know, don't think about the bang, don't think about the recoil. Think about grip tight, front sight, press. Grip tight, front sight, press. The gun's gonna recoil, let it recoil. Focus on gripping tightly and pressing the trigger. And I did have one student tell me that after a class with me, she had nightmares of me in her ear going, press. <laughs> Anyway, that's uh, that's my three minute uh, recoil anticipation fix. Jamie? I'm similar to that, but um, if I see that there's an issue, a lot of times I'll just have them hold the gun, keep the sights on the target, and I will press the trigger for them um, and, re and just be talking through the whole motions of everything that's going on because it's going to go off. They're not even going to realize it because they're paying attention to my voice. Um, I do that a lot with the, the recoil, you know, press, press, you know, press, 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 press. We say that a lot um, as well, but typically I just put my finger on there and just have them grip the gun, keep the gun on the tar or the sights on the target. And that usually helps because they're listening to me. They're not even paying attention. 
John? Well, I tell them it takes far less than three minutes to talk about it and far more than three minutes to solve it. Um, it's it's different for different people. Uh, I do all the things that we've talked about. And of course, once once you attend the Mudget class, you'll learn, if you don't already know, that that's actually uh, one of the Mudget drills. And it is one of, however, uh, and it serves really well for a certain thing. And then there's some other ones that will help as well. Um, in addition to that, what I've really started working with people on is vision. And I think that we have, uh, we, the firearms training community, have done a great disservice talking about site picture and using the term picture. Um, it's been attributed to Gabe White, and uh, I, Gabe and I still haven't quite worked this out, but uh, I've been using the term site video uh, since uh, first documented case in one of my handouts since 2006. But I have students that tell me they first heard it from me in the late 1990s. The idea is that uh, you've, you've got to drive the car all the way through all the turns and you've got to you've got to aim constantly through it. The concept that you're going to line everything up, compose it and then snap this picture without moving anything is the most difficult way to do it. That isn't the way we do most of the things in life that we need that same degree of coordination between the eyes and the body. Um, you catch a ball by following the ball all the way to the glove or all the way to your hands. You you follow through on a bat. You everything else we do is in light is in video, and I've had some success with that in in telling students to literally I make it, I put my hand I say flex your eyes open make big eyes hold your eyes open. We do one where I take away the target and they're just shooting into the berm and they're the objective of the drill is watch your sight go up and down. Now the point here is continue to drive your sight to the center of what you want to hit while you're doing the press so that we are literally putting input into the gun instead of trying to put no input into the gun. That's the most difficult way to do it. Drive constantly to the center of what you want to hit. That I believe also, if we get into the neurophysiology, the fact that you're activating muscles and giving them something to do, that's part of why gripping the gun hard works. You give the muscle something else to do rather than the flinch. Um, so it's a multidisciplined approach uh, to really find success. I don't find any one thing that works with all students, but combining all the things you've talked about with this idea of guide the gun constantly to the center of to exactly where you want the bullet to arrive while pressing the last 10% of the trigger press. I've had some success with that. Howard? Well, I do a lot of what uh, the panel has said already. The, the one thing that I do uh, find helps a lot is putting a red dot pistol in their hand and dry firing with that red dot pistol because it allows them to see the movement after they prep the trigger, it allows them to see the movement and they correct it because they see that dot move. So you'll tell them with iron sights, that big iron sight that they're moving the gun and they, they won't believe you. But you put a red dot pistol in their hand and they'll see it and they'll correct it. Um, and I also agree with John. I tell them that, listen, if you're trying to be perfect and get that dot in the center of the center of the center or that front sight in the center of the center of the center, you're gonna, you know, try and catch it. You're gonna, you're gonna miss it. So I do a little demonstration where I move the pistol that I learned from Tom, and I do that little circle thing, and I just start blowing out the center of the target. And they're like, "Oh my God, you're moving!" I was like, watching me move, and uh, that seems to have an effect on them also. Miss Whitlock. Hey, 
I find that it's very much psychological what they're doing. It's it's what's in their head and what they're thinking about. And they get so focused on getting that perfect shot that they're, you know, manipulating the gun or they're trying to, you know, squeeze the gun at times when it shouldn't be pressed. And I've said this before in my classes, get all the grip you're going to get and then press the trigger. And it's funny because I've spent, <laughs> I spent the weekend uh, I guess ROing for Lee's class. And I heard him do the class three different times. And I was like, Oh, well that's, that's who I got that from because I, he said it over and over and over again, get all the grip you're going to get and then press the trigger, you know? So like get your grip set and then move the triggers. Cause ultimately it's, you've got to get to where you're only moving that trigger finger and not moving the rest of your hand. And I think explaining it in that way is very helpful. And a lot of people get that. If I have some overthinkers in my class, like they're really just thinking about all the things, lining up the sights and pressing the trigger and standing and, you know, all the things that go into it. If they're thinking too much, this sounds completely ridiculous, but it works almost every single time. If I have them say the ABCs backwards in their head as they're pressing the trigger, that gets their mind off of the action of pressing the trigger and those instinctual things that happen. And it allows their subconscious to drive, drive the car, drive the gun. Um, so for my newbies, that, that tends to work. I don't say that they have to do that forever, the rest of their shooting career. But in the beginning, it really helps them get their mind out of the action of dealing with the gun and manipulating the gun and lets their subconscious deal with it. So it's weird, but it works. I can't say my ABCs backwards. You really have to think about it. So it keeps you from thinking about the gun. That's the trick. So Z, Y, X, W, and you get all wrapped up in that and you no longer are thinking about this. It works. I like it. That's Thank good you. stuff, Karen. Good stuff. Well, I just tell them to get all the grip they're going to get and then press the trigger. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> uh, Steven, it's funny that you mentioned you can't say your, your alphabet backwards. I can't tell you how many DUI stops I made. And you start the field sobriety and the person goes, all right, when you ask them to participate in field sobriety exercises, they go, just before we get started, I got to let you know, I can't say the alphabet backwards. I'm like, well, that's okay. I won't ask you to do it because I can't do it. I can't do it either. Uh, I'm, I might have to go with counting backwards in that place. Um, all kidding aside, it is get all the grip you're going to get and then press the trigger you can explain it in other ways too and i i got this from spencer keepers and i think spencer gives credit to it to mike seeklander uh there's a difference between grip and press rather than grip then press or versus grip then press. they mean two separate things and we want grip then press uh another way of saying that is uh separate your grip effort from your trigger effort and usually I explain it in all three of those varieties as I'm given my, my teaching point before I start doing my demos instead of start running the drills, because one of those three tends to, to key in somebody's mind. But Steve, let's hear your three minute explanation. Well, we actually had some success with this at the uh, girl in the gun uh, event up in uh, Palisade, Colorado. And that was to go into a little bit more detail on what exactly gripping the gun and getting all the grip uh, actually means. So we talked to them about how starting from, you know, the uh, index finger 
on the support hand comes up hard into the trigger guard, how that you basically, as Scott Jedlinski would say, you almost wrench your little finger and your hand in place. So you're gripping hard with the little fingers on both hands because that's about 40% of where your power comes from each hand. And then trying to close off any pressure leaks at the very back. And so we found that once we said, hey, uh, not only get a grip, but here is a way to get a grip that the shooter's performances seem to actually jump up rather noticeably. So we tried that in the last class we taught with some success. And so I've been, you know, thinking all these years that I've heard, get all the grip you're ever going to get, grip hard, don't let the gun move. And then it's like somehow, I, somehow I'm, I'm missing a link here because there's still a tendency in my hands sometimes, and especially in some of the students' hands, for that gun to move. And, okay, what was the best way to maybe kind of seal that off? In November of last year, I had to have kind of a radical surgery called partial row carpectomy, where they took out the bottom three bones in my uh, left wrist. And so I was basically unable to shoot for about four months. And when I came back, I was having all sorts of problems uh, getting my shooting back in order. You know, my hand side, my hand's a little bit shorter than it was, had some nerve impingement and everything. So actually what I did was I uh, arranged to go take a private four-hour course with uh, Carl Wren and spent a morning with him. And uh, Carl worked with me that whole morning. And so I got every single explanation that he could, you know, throw my way, uh, trying to help me understand that. And when it was the class was over. I was kind of like, okay, I think I understand some things I never was able to articulate before. So just kind of wanted to get everyone else's take on that. You know, it's funny that, that you mentioned that you gave a detailed explanation of what is a correct grip on the gun. And I'm reminded of a conversation that I had with Vicki Farnham one time when I asked her, okay, explain to me the difference between teaching men and women. If she had told me the selfies thing, I would have remembered it. But, you know, she told me, well, be very detailed in your explanations. And she showed me how she would teach locking the slide to the rear to women. And I'm sitting there thinking, if I do that, I'm going to be accused of mansplaining. But I have found out that when I actually get into those details, I actually get better results. And I'm sitting here thinking when you, you started explaining exactly what you're doing with the grip, that may be a missing piece. Because if we're telling a student that does not know how to grip the gun correctly to get all the grip they're going to get, they might not know what that means. And I'm reminded of recently I had the experience of helping teach a teenage girl to drive. And I kept telling her to check the side mirrors. And all of a sudden, she gets very exasperated with me and says, you keep telling me to check the mirrors, but you haven't yet told me what I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was obvious. But things that we as experienced people may think are obvious, maybe we need to go back to those very basics and explain them and be very detailed in those explanations. All right. Amy, uh, Amy asked me to explain what mansplaining was. I figured it was a trap and I didn't say anything and we just <laughs> stared at each other for 30 minutes. There you go. All right. We are right at an hour and a half. So I want to skip uh, going and asking my question out to the panel because I commented enough as we went along. Uh, we'll just go back around one more time. Tim, what you got coming up? What you want to pitch? And where can people uh, find you? 
actually, so it is high summer in Texas and my classes are, are severely curtailed right now. I'm gonna be doing some indoor only holster success classes since the point of those is how to safely get the gun out of the holster and back into it. Uh, live fire isn't gonna be a part of it. So we're gonna do some indoor air conditioned holster success classes uh, that I'll be co-teaching with Breezy Warner. Where can they find you and where will those classes be? Uh, you can find me on uh, tdrtraining.com or tdr.training on Facebook. Uh, the classes are actually on Breezy's Facebook page, which is Four Winds Firearms Training on Facebook. Okay, San Antonio area? Uh, yeah, north, northwest San Antonio area, about, about 30 or 40 minutes just outside San Antonio. So Kerrville, Utopia, uh, Uvalde, all this area. All right, Jane? I'm in the Oklahoma City area. You can find me on OklahomaGunTraining.com. You can find me on Facebook under the same name. I have a uh, holster, uh, ladies only holster clinic coming up um, this month. I'm also starting a women's uh, pistol league at an outdoor range um, starting next month and we'll be meeting monthly. Um, those will all be at Oklahoma City Gun Club. You can find those on their website as well as mine. And uh, I'll be do, I'll still be doing some uh, concealed carry classes and things like that. And I schedule private lessons uh, quite often. I work full time, so um, I usually schedule them on the weekends. All right, John. I'm at westcoastarmorynorth.com. Uh, if you're in the Seattle Everett uh, area, uh, I'm having the most fun right now doing a thing that I call Citizens Defender Study Group, just study group and and as I refer to it. And that's an ongoing thing. I approach it from the idea of it's like going to martial arts classes or whatever. Uh, just an, an ongoing meet twice a month uh, training program. I'm hoping to break away some time in my schedule to get back to traveling again. If, uh, if you have a range and uh, you might be interested in hosting, uh, I'm looking to put together a schedule for next year. And again, you can reach me at westcoastarmorynorth.com. Uh, that's TBSH at westcoastarmorynorth.com. You got to put the North in there. There's another company out there you'll get otherwise. Howard? Yeah, I'm in Ocala, Florida. You can find me at hwmtraining.com or hwmtraining on Facebook. We're running concealed carry classes every other Sunday at the range. Um, we're waiting to get the outdoor range set up and running. And like Tim, it's going to be super hot and humid down here. So we're curtailing some of our outdoor activities until it starts cooling off a bit. Uh, but you can definitely find the classes we're posting uh, in one of those two places. Okay. So I'm at triggertimerange.com. If you go to the training tab, all the classes are listed there. Mostly just basic one, two, and three. Um, three is where we're drawing from a holster. So if you're interested in anything like that, come see me. Steve? Well, uh, we're at ptgtrainingllc.com in July, July 15, 16, and 17th. We'll be at the Tri-County Gun Club in Sherwood, Oregon, uh, teaching a one-day church security fundamentals class, a one-day managing potential threats in public areas class, and a one-day defensive shotgun class. Uh, on October 8th, we're going to host uh, Green Ops Mike Green uh, for his Red Dot Pistol class in Granbury, Texas. 
on October 29 and 30, we're going to be at the KR training uh, range down in Lincoln, Texas, teaching our two-day church security instructor leader development class level one. And we'll be teaching that same class on December 3 and 4 at the uh, CCW Safe 5.0 range in Tuttle, Oklahoma, which is a pretty awesome range. I know Jamie's been there and Jamie can attest it's it's pretty sweet out there. So that's kind of what we got going on. And I'm very flattered to be on a panel with all of you fine ladies and gentlemen. All right, you can find my classes at firstpersonsafety.com or you can go to thatweemsguy.com and you can get to, to them either way. Uh, classes are coming up in Terre Haute, Kalamazoo, San Antonio, Nashville, and Miamisburg, Ohio. So just check out the schedule and sign up for something there. And audience, uh, well, first to the panelists, thank you all for answering the invitation. This was very fun. Uh, really enjoyed being able to speak with you all at, in one big group and hear all the different questions and the answers, uh, because it's great for us to be able to get together and bounce stuff off of each other and hopefully the audience gets benefit of, out of that as well and to the audience we know that your most valuable resource is your time and thank you for choosing to spend it with us